Anybody else have a sore back from shoveling this week? Yeah, I see a few hands there. I see that hand. Yeah, uh, there's a, it was one of those weeks, you know, in our neighborhood, it's, the, I live in this neighborhood here, and you know, it's like, this place comes alive in summer. It's like buzz everywhere. There's, there's people walking dogs, there's kids running around, there's all sorts of stuff happening, there's people exercising, and then the white stuff comes. Well, actually, before the white stuff comes, just the cold comes. And when the cold comes, everyone like hibernates. You know, we're just like bears. We're just, you never see anybody anymore. You see a car go past every now and then at a high rate of speed trying to get to the driveway and into the warm house. And that's about it. You know, and you never see anybody anymore until the white stuff falls. And when the white stuff falls, everything changes because then everyone's got to come out of their house to clear out their driveway. And the kids, of course, you can't keep them from getting out there. So all of a sudden, all the kids come out and the driveways are being shoveled and it's, uh, it's, you get to see everyone again. And uh, it's also a time that where I get excited because you get to see people help each other out some. There was a when the the first day that we had the snow, I didn't get out till late because I was working from our office at home, the office at my house. And so I eventually I was like, you know what, I better go down there and shovel it out. And I go out to shovel. And ours is the last driveway in our, our units here um, on our side getting shoveled out. And I see right across from me, there's a there's a woman who lives across the street, and her driveway hadn't been touched yet, except for the fact that there's this family a couple doors down, and they had started to, to, to shovel out her driveway. And I was like, oh, you guys are doing double duty today, huh? And they were like, actually, yeah, uh, you know, her mom was injured or something, so she's staying with her mom and can't get it out, so we just wanted to help her out and clear it out. And I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. Like, you know, and how often do you get to see it? That just reminds me of driving on 422 you know, and how everyone's always caring about what the other person's needs are. It's, it's like, it's just a, the utopia that we live in, you know. And uh, <laughs> liar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anybody ever heard of Anne Rand? Anne Rand, the philosopher? Okay. She was a, a playwright and a philosopher and author. She was born in Russian, uh, a, a communist Russia, and she um, hated communism. She, she hated what it had done to her life and her family, and she, uh, so she had a polar reaction to it, this massive polar reaction to it. And she uh, developed this philosophy called objectivism. And objectivism was a radical form of capitalism, an incredibly radical form of capitalism. She said there should be one guiding moral ethic in society, just one thing, should be the only ethic, self interest. That's it. If, if we just came to terms with the fact that no one actually cares about another person, they all care about themselves, and we all just went after what it is that we wanted, we'd at least know what we're dealing with, and things would kind of work out. We'd figure out how to barter and exchange and get what we want. And if we just realized that the bottom line is self-interest, we'd do a lot better instead of dealing with all this mumbo-jumbo moralism and whatever. Scriptures, I want to read something for you in Philippians. This is in chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How's that work for Anne Rand? Doesn't work out real well. Anne Rand didn't care. She was an atheist. Didn't matter. Um, that, that was not her... It wasn't... Not, she the scriptures were not the authority for her reason was, you know? 
And when reason is our authority, we have to figure out what works for us. When the scriptures are the authority, we have to figure out what the scriptures say and we have to obey it. And uh, so it depends on, you know, where our framework is. Regardless of where we're at in our journey, I want to ask you a question. How many of us feel that there is an overabundance of looking to the best interests of others and a real deficit of self-interest in our society? How many of you think that? That there's a deficit of self-interest, that people don't think about themselves enough. You know? That we're just, we just got to get a little bit more all about us, and then it'll work out. None of you. Pansies. <laughs> How many of us think that we have a problem with a little bit too much self-interest in our society? Yeah, I do too. I think we have a problem with self-interest. But, you know, with that said, I, you know, that's why it's so relieving to see neighbors helping each other out and different things happening. It's relieving when we see that happen. It's like we need more of, like, looking at one another and helping each other out. But I, I got another question for you. If you're, those of you who have flown on an airplane, when you get on an airplane and before the, the, the flight is underway, the flight attendant gets up and she starts telling you about all the things that might happen on the flight just to scare you. You know, and then uh, she says, in case of uh, loss of cabin pressure, there will be oxygen masks that will fall from the ceiling. Now, uh, if you have a dependent who you need to help with before you help them, put your own mask on. Right. Why do they tell you to do that? Yeah, you'll die. You'll die if you can't breathe and then you can't help them anyway. Right. So you put your oxygen mask on. You'll it won't work. And uh, so. Put your own, own oxygen mask on first. This is actually, in my opinion, become uh, much more the philosophy of today in America, which is that we do really believe that we should help other people out. We just believe that you've got to take care of you before you can take care of others, right? I mean, you've got to get your own oxygen mask on before you can really be caring about anyone else. Now, listen, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, and, uh, and uh, you don't have to tell anybody this, but I am going to ask... We're going to take a, you have, to, you have a ballad inside your mind right now, okay? And you've got to cast your ballad. Is that a good philosophy for life? Is it a biblical philosophy for life? Is this what the scriptures teach? You've got to put your own mask on before you can take care of others. You've got to take care of you before you can take care of them. Is it biblical? Okay, cast your ballad in your mind. Don't tell anyone else and don't lie to yourself. Cast it legit and don't change your mind, okay? Well, I, maybe I will change your mind by the end, but we'll see. When I was in middle school, I, uh, my brother went off to college, and my brother and I had a very interesting relationship. We loved each other to death, almost literally. And uh, we, you know, he's one of my closest friends, but we also, uh, I, I had a, a fierce temper, and he knew exactly how to get that temper going, you know. Um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. My brother and I actually got closer as he uh, went to college and then went overseas and did some missions and that type of thing. But while he was in college, uh, you know, we, we actually started to build our relationship much more at that point. Now, my brother and I were one of the fortunate ones. We grew up in a family that had uh, a lot of love for us, and my sister, too. I'm not trying to leave her out, but this story is more about my brother. So, uh, we, we grew up in a family where there was a lot of affection, a lot of care, um, a lot of locking horns and disagreeing. You know, I, my, my dad and I had an interesting relationship. Um, there's a few of you here who knew me when I was younger and uh, knew my relationship with my dad was a little bit interesting. We locked horns and, and that type of thing. We were both pretty, pretty opinionated um, and the like. But, you know, the funny thing is, is, is they really, my, my dad 
was an awesome dad. Really was. I mean, strong disciplinarian, and I didn't want to cross him, you know. And looking back, I really appreciated it. It provided a framework and a structure for my life that's, that a lot of things are built on. But he also provided financially, even though he was an extremely busy person, found time to be a scoutmaster of the scout troop, to be the soccer coach, and to be all sorts of things, you know. Be invested. Was, he was a great dad. He really was. And I never, never, uh, looking back, there was no question that he, they, you know, my parents loved me. And even at the time, even when we would lock horns, I didn't really question whether or not I was loved, you know. And that's uh, an awesome thing that many people don't have the privilege of, you know. And for those of you who haven't had that privilege, I'm sorry, you know. Um, it's an awesome thing to, to know that your family cares for you. Um, when my brother would come home from college, he was in engineering, and we'd go, we'd hang out together. And uh, my, my family, we'd do something. My sister was out in Ohio at college, and she didn't come back as often. So, like, the four of us would be in a car going somewhere. And all of a sudden, my dad and my brother would start talking shop because my dad's an engineer and my brother's an engineer, and they're both wicked smart. And so they start, like, figuring stuff out and talking about stuff. And my mom is somewhere, like, daydreaming in Pluto about something else or thinking about whatever else she has going on that day because she's, like, checking out, like, whatever, you know. And I'm sitting in the back thinking, like, could I possibly be any more bored than I am right now? And, like, is, is, it, is it possible? And then, like, I'd watch. And I remember looking, like, at this interaction and watching my dad's face and realizing, like, he is thoroughly enjoying himself right now. He finally has someone in this family who he can interact with and talk shop with, you know? And, like, he was loving it. And I just saw his face light up. And I remembered thinking, one privilege I will never have is being able to be interested in any of this stuff and therefore bring joy to my father by having this kind of conversation. This is a way we're never, ever going to be able to relate, you know? And actually, at the time, I actually felt a twinge of jealousy. You know, I was like, I wish that I could care and I wish I could hang because then I could have this conversation with my dad and relate to my dad. And there was no, again, there was no, like, I never thought, like, you know, dad loves Ern more than he loves me or anything like that. It was just, I wish that, that I could be in on the, like, cool moment here, you know, and feel that sense of validation and all of that stuff. But it wasn't available. But other things were. Can you put the first slide up, please? Okay, see this picture? I like those gold shorts. <laughs> Woo! <Yeah. laughs> um, <laughs> I went, uh, this is homecoming, my senior year. I went to a Christian school, and we didn't have a football team, so homecoming revolved around the, uh, the soccer game instead of the, the football game. And this year, my senior year, we were playing our rival school. Uh, when I was there, our rival school was Calvary in Souderton. And uh, one of my closest friends was the striker at Calvary. Uh, and he was a phenomenal soccer player. And I was the striker for Chapel. And so we were going head-to-head at homecoming. Big rivalry. Let's go! You know, and it was like we were all fired up. You know, the adrenaline's pumping. It was homecoming. You know, and by the end of this game, we won 4-1. to one. You know, and it was just awesome. And it was this phenomenal moment. I actually had a hat trick in the game, and I got to score three goals in this game, and it was like just a spectacular game. But this one, I'm telling you this because there's this one goal, there's this moment, okay? And the ball comes across, and I dive through the air, and I'm like parallel with the ground, get a diving header on it, I hit it, and I watch the ball go into the back of the net. And as it's going into the back of the net, all of a sudden my eye shifts from the ball to someone who's behind the net, jumping up and down, screaming, freaking out, so excited, it's my dad. <laughs> you know? And he's like all fired up watching this ball go into the back of the net. And this is the picture after the game of me there with my parents. Now, look at the look on their faces. 
What is that look? What is that? Yeah, they're, they're proud. They're proud. Yeah, they're extremely proud. Now, the thing is, is like I said, I never question whether my parents love me. And if I ever have a question about whether my parents love me, like, what's my mom doing when I'm sick and throwing up or whatever, you know? And what's my dad doing when I'm a rebellious kid? And, you know, like, those are the moments when we test love and love is proven. These aren't the moments when love is proven. You know, this doesn't test love. This is the one day of their life that I made it easy for them. You know, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's the one day, you know, and um, it's funny how like just knowing that you're loved is we need to know we're loved. But love is such a broad term, you know, and knowing that someone cares for me. I mean, in that day, in, you know, when the car, when my dad's talking with my brother, I still know I'm loved. But there's a certain level of validation that I'm still looking for. There's still something more that I want. And in this picture, you see there's something else that you receive in approval. When someone takes pride in you, when someone really likes you, when they want to be with you, when it's not just pity or not just like an act of discipline to care about you, you know, that it's actually like emotionally they're drawn to you and they're like, boy," you know, I'm proud of you. And that is what we call validation, a moment of validation. And we all yearn for it to have the opinion of someone who we deeply care about. Look at us with pride, with attraction, with respect. Those are moments of validation, and they're really, really important to us. They shape us, and they inform our self-image. You can go back to the other slide. This guy here is looking in the mirror, and what he's seeing is different than what's actually there. (coughs) But so often what we see when we look at ourselves is not just reality. It's about what everyone has thought about us, what everyone has said about us. We learn by watching what others, how they respond to us, who we actually are and how we should see ourselves. We look everywhere for the validation. We all need it. We all want it. We all shape our self-image around it. There was an exhaustive survey done in college campuses all across America. And there was a real attempt to understand the human psyche of college students in America. And so they uh, asked, you know, tons of questions. And it was all anonymous. There was no accountability or anything. So they could answer just raw questions. One of the things they did is they listed all the different things that a kid could experience at college, you know, uh, and asked them to rate how much they wanted these things. And so they said, like, how much do you want, um, you know, to eat your favorite food? One to ten. How much do you want a good test score? Rate it, 1 to 10. How much do you want a, a, a sexual encounter with another person? Rate it, 1 to 10. How much do you want uh, that buzz that you get at a party when you're doing these types of things? Rate it, 1 to 10. How much do you want a compliment from one of your teachers? Rate it, 1 to 10. And they had them rate all these things. And then, of course, the analysts want to pick it all apart and study why do they want these things, what, what does this say about this. And the one study they did is they took all the things that provided immediate pleasure and they put them in this category. And then they took all the things that provided a boost in self-esteem, and they put them in this category. And they said the most amazing finding that they had in all of this was it was an absolute, total, 100% landslide. No question about it, that all college students, the big thing they wanted, the resounding answer was that across America, more than they wanted any pleasure at all, they wanted a boost in their self-esteem. And they wanted it so badly that it became... That, that the survey revealed that this was potentially a full-on addiction for a large section 
of college students across America, an addiction to boosts in self-esteem. Esteem, according to Webster, is worth or value, opinion, judgment, the regard in which someone is held. How do we see ourselves? What kind of worth do we have in our own minds? Do we value ourselves? Do we see ourselves? Do we have a great opinion of ourselves? Do we have a good judgment about ourselves? Do we hold ourselves in high regard? The average college student in America reveals what's true about most Americans in general, that our image of ourselves is not all that wonderful and that we want more and better and bigger, more wonderful image of ourselves and that we're not where we want to be. Mother Teresa, you know, she was a pretty impressive humanitarian to say the least, and she was a student of people. Most of the time that she uh, did her work, she was in the Eastern Hemisphere, and she was dealing with people who had physical ailments and taking care of their needs, but she was still a student of the West, being from the West. And this is what she had to say about people in the West. The greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but also a poverty of spirituality. There's a hunger for love, and there's a hunger for God. There's a deep pandemic in our world. Deep pandemic of terrible self-image issues. People not feeling validated, not feeling cared about, not feeling important, not feeling worthwhile, not feeling successful, not feeling beautiful. And it causes all sorts of relational issues. And more than we have hospitals full of people with physical issues, I think equally to the, to, to the need for, for medication for physical issues, we have a need for people with relational issues all over the place because there isn't enough stability internally in order to function well in relationships. We're a broken people in need of something. The world offers two solutions, two treatments for our self-image issues. Two things. First, boost the self-image. Okay, so this is one of the greatest markets in the U.S. right now. If you want to sell something, this is how you market it. This will make you better, okay? So if you, any self-help book, any, uh, you know, image on a magazine that tells me how I should look or could look if I did this, or any car that I want to sell that'll say something about who I am, or any article of clothing that'll make me feel this way, or any success in my career that'll make me feel better about myself, or yada, 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 okay? Those are things all across the board that sell wonderfully. The second big market is the immediate pleasure things, which actually most of the time are put in place to numb the pain of the absence of positive self-image. So if I don't feel good about myself, somehow I've got to distract myself, so I need to be entertained or numb the pain or do whatever, so I, I need to, to have pleasure, constantly entertained and make me feel okay in the moment because I don't, in general, have a state of feeling okay about myself. There's a cycle back and forth. It looks a lot more like Ayn Rand, doesn't it? I mean, Western society, doesn't it? Where we look to our own interests. 
It's an unending cycle. You know, poverty, Mother Teresa said the biggest poverty is loneliness of being unwanted. This, when you have poverty, you, you get hungry because you can't have food. And if you have someone whose belly is empty and they haven't eaten in days, and you go and you try to give them something fun to play with or fun to do, you think they're interested? They want to eat. They want to eat. And no matter how much you try to distract someone or get them past an empty stomach, eventually they need to be fed or they can't think about anything else except food. And in the West, when there's a deficit of love and a deficit of value and a deficit of purpose and a deficit of meaning in people's lives, there can be all the entertainment in the world. And there can be every positive thing that we can yearn for. And yet if we don't have this gnawing sensation inside of us somehow fulfilled so that we feel like we have purpose and value that we're cared about and that someone actually loves us and that we're special, if that thing is not filled, then everything else is just white noise and pointless because I have a gnawing, empty hunger in my heart that needs to know that I am loved and I am special. And it's an unending cycle that kills us when we don't find it. The search for it is all over the place. When you start in middle school or wherever, I don't know, you start to look for it from the, the affection of another. You know, Eventually you realize this validation, you can't just talk yourself into it. I'm good enough. I'm, I'm okay. I'm worthwhile. That doesn't work. You can go and do something nice for someone, but the next day you feel the same way again. And you can go and buy that fancy whatever, and you still end up feeling empty, and it only lasts for so long. And you try to tell yourself, I'm okay. I'm good. And it only works for so long. And eventually you're like, this isn't working, and we need the validation of someone else. And so we then Hollywood cashes in and tells us about every love story, about how you feel validated by some other person being drawn to you and attracted to you. And you know, the funny thing is, is, is we buy it hook, line, and sinker because we know that we need the love. And um, when I, again, okay, I'm in late middle school um, in, in this story. And this is the first time that I, my heart really started to go for a girl. Okay, and uh, I, I was hanging out with this girl and she was a few years older than me. I'm not going to name any names because... There might be some in this room who still know who, that, who these people are. Nate went to school with me, so yeah. Um, the, uh, you had to think that picture was pretty funny, homecoming picture, yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, I, my, my heart went for this girl, okay? And we were hanging out with some friends and that type of thing. And then eventually I'm like, all right, I've got to come clean with how I feel about her. So I wrote this note to her and let her know how I felt about her in the note. That's middle school, right? That's how you roll. And so um, she pulls me aside, and she was an upperclassman, and she pulls me aside at one point. Um, the high school and middle school were in the same building, and she, she pulls me aside and says, hey, um, like, I think you're awesome. You're a great guy. She's like, you know, giving me all these compliments, buttering me up. And then she's like, but I don't, I'm sorry if I gave you the wrong impression. I'm not headed in this thing where you are. And I was like, what? You know, and like, first of all, like, I'm just like, I'm caught off guard because I really thought like she was into me, you know, and she wasn't. And then like all of a sudden I'm caught more off guard because all of a sudden emotions came up in me. And I'm like, what are they? You know, and like, get them away from me. And like this tear started to come to my eye and I'm like, no, 
I'm in school. The tears coming. You know, like every dude is going to mock me. You know, and like, so I'm like, I got to get away from her, you know, and I'm like, I, whatever, I hate you, whatever. And, you know, and so like, I, I go away from her and the, seriously, the tears starts to come and I'm like, dang it. You know, and like all my, all my friends keep asking me, I can't hide it. They're like, what's going on? You all right? And I'm like, I'm fine. Leave me alone. You know, like, what are you talking about? And so, like, it was just terrible, you know. And, there, and I, I learned that day just how dumb you have to be to, to actually give your heart to someone, you know. Like, you got to be dumb. You know, there, there's no good reason to do that. If you want to learn how to negotiate in your relationships, you got to be like, I don't need that, you know. I don't need that. I'm above that. I don't need all that, you know. I got this. I'm, I'm cool with who I am. You know what? You're lost, girl, you know. Like, and, and that's how we begin to negotiate in relationships. And then they're contractual. You get a little bit of this. I get a little bit, you know, and, and you'll offer this and I'll offer this. And that's how we deal in the relationship now. You know, I'm in control of my own thing, you know, and I don't need validation from you. And so in and out of relationship, I went, of course. None of them are going to be healthy functioning that way. And... Uh, it was all good until I got um, to, to college and, um, you know, still just kind of in and out of dating relationships and that type of thing. And then I meet this other girl. And all of a sudden, just like that day when the tear came up, something happened and I couldn't keep my stuff together the way I wanted to. And I just wasn't as cool as I wanted to be, you know, and uh, my heart. And then I told you the story a couple of weeks ago. Those of you who are here, I happened to go ballroom dancing with her. And then afterwards, she wanted to have some define the relationship talk, you know, the DTR. And uh, we had the talk. And uh, at first I was like, this is the first time that I had thought about middle school in a long time, you know, and I was like, oh, here we go. Like, we got to get to a private place, because, man, if that tear comes out, I am not being the dude, you know? And um, so we have the talk, and it turns out she's trying to feel me out because she's actually really interested in me and afraid of the same thing. And turns out, you know, voila. And uh, so we have this wonderful connection, and we start to see each other. And a couple weeks later, we had a friend who, he was an exchange student from Scotland, and he was dating one of Jen's friends. And uh, so... We went out on a, a double date to a Kaylee dance, a uh, Celtic dance, dancing again. What's with all this dancing? Goodness gracious, are you allowed to do that in church, Steve? Yeah. And so, um, anyway, we we went we went dancing again, and here's the picture of Jen and I um, at the Kaylee dance. Okay. And uh, so, look at the look on her face. I wish you could zoom it in right now, but look at the look on her face. What's the look on her face? Yeah, Nate. That's right. <laughs> She's into me. That's what he said. She's into you. He's been saying that for a long time. <laughs> that's, that's our job as friends, you know. Oh, yeah, she's into you, you know. And so... Yeah, I mean, like, she's into me. She's happy. Look at that, you know? And so here's the girl who my heart was drawn to, and all of a sudden, like, look at the look on her face. She's stoked to be with me. Like, that's awesome, you know? Like, talk about validation, you know? Putting that, scoring a hat trick and having dad be stoked, having the girl here who it's like, I'm drawn to and she likes being with me. What kind of validation do you need if you got, if you got your dad thinking you're doing a great job, the girl, you know, being into you? What more validation do you need? The funny thing is, is four months later, I was completely not okay in this relationship. Completely not okay. Because I had bet all my chips that when I finally found the girl who would be that, who, the girl who I was really into, who was also into me, and it all worked out, that I'd be satisfied. And that that empty hunger inside of me 
would be filled. And a few months later, I realized it wasn't filled. And I was empty. And what's more is I was like, there's no way I can commit to this relationship because until I, I know me and I'm going to, I got to eat, you know, I'm hungry. And I can't think about all that until I eat and I need more. And so I couldn't settle down, you know. And for four years, we were on and off in this dating relationship before I could man up, you know. And um, this is what happens. We look for validation. We look for love. We look for places to be approved, to be desired, to be the attractive one, to be the, the respectable one, the impressive one, to be whatever, you know. We love it when someone validates us, but it only lasts for so long. You can change the slide. So tell me this. If the pride of a father and the attraction of a good woman couldn't satisfy the need inside of me, then what could? You know? Whose pride in me, whose attraction to me could make me feel like there's something worthwhile? Well, if it couldn't be dad and if it couldn't be the woman, there's really only one option left. And it's the Almighty God. But how in the world is that going to help me? I mean, where's he at? I can't see the look in his eyes or the smile on his face. I can't put that picture up on the screen. I'll tell you what I can do is I can tell you to lift your eyes just above the screen. This is what he says. Ephesians 5. Verse 25. Husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word. Now listen to this, verse 27. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Before I get back to all of that, you need to know something. When God created us, image was everything. Anybody remember Andre Agassi? Remember that? Remember the commercials he used to have for Rebel Canon cameras? And like the whole line was, image is everything. How you portray yourself is everything. Image really is, in many ways, everything. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It tells us why God created us, how he created us. It was all about image. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Listen to me. If you can pick one Hollywood star to look like physically, who would it be? If you could picture one person's career that you would want to be your career and how successful they are, who would it be? If you want one person's bank account, make it Warren Buffett's or, or, uh, or whoever's, you know, whose bank account, whatever it is, think about those people and say we never quite 
measure up. And then think about this. When God created us to reflect an image, it wasn't their image he created us to reflect. It wasn't our own image he created us to reflect. He created us to look like him. The almighty God of the universe. The picture of faithfulness. The very essence of beauty. Power personified. Perfection. That's who we were called, created to look like. And in the moment when I think for a second that I might be okay and my self-image is alright for a second, there's a problem. The way that a child, no matter how bad the relationship or how absent the relationship has been with their family, the child still wants the validation from the parent. It's there. You can't get rid of it. It's in there. And no matter how hard we try to hide from it, it's in there. And in the same way, in our spiritual DNA, we desperately want validation from God. And His standard for us was that we were to look like Him. How many of us have fulfilled that? Not me. And so internally, whether we're cognizant of it or not, whether we're aware or not, we know. 1 John 3 tells us this. It says our hearts condemn us because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And we no longer reflect the image that we were supposed to. And no matter how good we get, no matter how successful we get, no matter how good we look, no matter how many people validate us, we will still feel empty because it doesn't live up to the image of the Almighty God whom we were created to reflect. And like the moon reflects the sun, that was our job to reflect the image of the God who created us. Jesus knows it. And He knows that our hearts condemn us. And when Adam and Eve completely mess up and stop depending on God and they turn their own way. Instantly, they feel shame. Remember the next story in the Bible? They have two kids. Who are their kids? Their first two. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. You remember, they have a great story, don't they? Wonderful. Yeah, Cain takes out Abel because they both offered worship to God and Abel's was appropriate and Cain's was not and Cain they had this epic battle now because now I don't feel good about me and you don't feel good about you and so now we look for validation and Cain and Abel are looking at each other like competitive brothers who love each other to death you know and literally looking at each other and being like who are you I know you you're not all that I'm about to take you out you know and boom takes them down strikes them down Because when we are hungry and we are not full, we need validation. And when someone else is getting the validation and I'm not, they're the competition. And now we're in Ayn Rand philosophy. Every man for himself. And we get pinned against one another. And Josh talked about it last week when he said the world got wrapped up in a battle of winning and losing. And there's the winners and there's the losers, but we're all losers unless we find God and realize that he loves us. Jesus knows that this is how we feel. He knows that there is an emptiness and a gnawing sensation inside of us and that we are addicted to filling that gnawing sensation. And so our lives are consumed with one thing, the greatest idol of the Western world, self. We don't worship images other than images that we wish to portray. That's what we worship these days, self. The greatest idol in the Western world. And Jesus knows that we're addicted to it and he knows that his created object for us 
His created purpose for us is to reflect his image in the core of his image, at the very core, at the very center of who God is. If you take all of his characteristics, all of his attributes, and you wrap it up, and you go right to the center of who he is, First John tells us God is love. Putting the best interests of one ahead of myself. The antithesis of love, selfishness. It's about me. And God knows that we were lost in selfishness. Jesus knows that until we felt differently about ourselves, until we put on our own oxygen mask, we couldn't help anybody else. Is it biblical that you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first? Yes and no. It's biblical that we need our oxygen before we can help someone else. No oxygen, you can't help. But you can't put on your own oxygen mask. We can't love ourselves enough to feel okay. So that's what Ephesians says. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, doing everything within his power to present her, that's us, to himself without blemish, pure, spotless, holy, cleansing her. See, here's the deal. We, we need the validation, but I don't know about you, but the feeling of like someone just throwing me pity and saying like, oh yeah, you're great, you know? Whatever, you see that guy over there? You know, like that kind of validation doesn't help us. It's trite. It's not real. And because of our internal meter, we know that we've failed in the image of God. And if God just says, I love you, or even if he really does love us, but it's still just taking care of us when we're a total mess, that doesn't make us feel better about ourselves. Even if he saves us from eternal separation from him and brings us into eternal beauty of heaven, does that make me feel better about myself? Not necessarily. I might feel more secure about my future, but it doesn't change that I feel like a bum. You know, It doesn't change that I still feel like I blow it all the time and I mess up. What changes it? One thing, when he is able to present us to himself without blemish, when he is able to look at us and we see smiles on his face like you saw the smile on Jen's face and you saw the smile on my dad's face, when he's able to look at us that way and we're able to believe it, everything changes. There's girls who can't wait for the day when they walk up an aisle and see that look in a guy's face standing at the other end of the aisle bringing that level of validation because looking back at the aisle, just desiring that woman with everything inside of them, you know? And she feels a validation in that moment. There's guys who, who yearn to have a certain level of success in their life because when I get here, I'll feel like I accomplished something and there's value to me, you know? And what Jesus says is one day he wants to present us to himself as a spotless bride who doesn't have to feel ashamed, who doesn't have to feel like it's fake. The battle is still a battle of winning and losing. But we need to win. Part of Christianity tells us that we need to realize we're losers, and that's true. And we need to realize that we need to lean into the winner. But until he makes us feel like winners, all we're going to think about is ourselves. This is how it works. Jesus hangs on the cross and the whole time that they're pounding nails into him and the whole time that he's running out of air and the whole time that his lungs are filling up with blood, this is what he's thinking of. Someday, they're going to look at me and when they look into these eyes and when they look at this smile, they're going to know it's genuine. That I'm not just faking and saying, oh yeah, I love you, but I love you. You are awesome. You're amazing. And all that stuff that you want to hold against yourself, I buried that when I went down to the grave. It's gone. It's dead. You are born again. 
You are a new person. See yourself through the eyes that I see you with. See, this is the thing. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the moment where Jesus can again have his created purpose working in our life, where he can get us to the place where we can get past ourselves and actually start caring about other people, when he can satisfy the hunger in our hearts, when he can satisfy the emptiness in our hearts. We don't have to worry about how we look. We don't have to worry about how much success we have. We don't have to worry about how they see us. Everything changes. Here's the picture of it. I'm going to read one more passage for you, okay? This is in Luke chapter 7. Every woman that seemed to encounter Jesus, have you ever noticed the stories of the women and how they bounce off of Jesus and how they interact with Jesus in the scriptures? It's unbelievable what he, the effect he has on women. You know how like there's Casanovas who have certain effects on women and there's, and there's, there's all sorts of different kinds of effects that, that men can have on women. Jesus had a very, very unique effect on the women who came in contact with him. Chapter 7, verse 36 of Luke. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, the Pharisee's the religious leader, and he reclined at the table. Now this is the way they recline at the table. There's like a low table, there's no chairs, and they kind of like lean into the table with their legs behind them. It's kind of how it worked back then, okay? There's like pillows and stuff and all around the table. So that's, what, that's the scene, is they're all kind of leaning up against this low low-laying table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came in there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, the religious guy, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him. I love that. He answered him. Did he say anything to Jesus? No, he didn't say anything to Jesus, but Jesus answers him. <laughs> Jesus is like, I see the look on your face. I'm about to answer it. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give water for my feet, that was the custom of the day, to wash the dirty feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, again, a custom of the day, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has, not poured, she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Now listen, you hear this story. You hear what this woman did. You, hear how, you see how absurd what she did was. I mean, this is just madness to walk into the religious leader's house when everyone who knows the kind of lifestyle that she's led, and she walks in and weeps tears on these dirty feet that haven't been washed, and then she takes her hair and she wipes them off and she takes her expensive perfume that is probably in many ways her life savings and she pours them on her feet, on his feet. And, and she anoints him and she washes him and takes care of him. Her response when she has been forgiven much. You see, the way that Jesus has this kind of effect on us and brings us back to our created purpose is that he loves us in a way that we've never been loved before. You know how every person saw that woman? One of two ways in her entire life. Either she was an object to be used and they used her physical beauty for their own pleasure or they scorned her for the behavior which she engaged in. That was the two ways they viewed her. The way Jesus viewed her was a child who had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And to him, she was gorgeous. And when she looked in Jesus' eyes, she saw nothing but validation. And so she didn't care what any person in that room thought. She was full filled to the brim, overflowing with thanksgiving. Life wasn't about her anymore. It was about Jesus. And it was about everyone else's interests. She broke free of Anne Rand's objectivism because she had an oxygen mask that was put on her face, but it wasn't put on by her own good works or by eventually achieving some level of self-image. It was put on there because Jesus felt about her a way that she could never feel about herself. And he says, your faith has saved you. This is faith. Not to believe that there is a God, but to believe that that God feels great affection toward you. And when you believe that, and when you hold it deep in your heart, the hunger will be filled. And you will find yourself capable of getting beyond the greatest idol of our day, self. Get to a place where life can be lived for God and for people other than just us. It's a beautiful message. We're going to close in a, in a song, How He Loves. I want to read for you the lyrics to this song. We sing it all the time. He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane, and I'm a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and his mercy. And all of a sudden, I'm unaware of these afflictions. They're eclipsed by glory. Because I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. We are his portion, and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. Heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss, and my heart, it turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way that he loves us. He loves us.